Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Great God and most gracious Heavenly Father, we come before you as those who do need you. Every hour, every minute, second, moment of our lives, we stand in need of you. We confess that there are times, again, where we have lived and acted presumptuously as though we have no need of you. We have lived at times without reference to you. Uh, We have not sought you, your wisdom. We have uh, not requested your word. We have not read your ways. We have not kept. And we ask for your forgiveness, for your mercy and grace for such moments. We pray that there would be a real tangible cry from our hearts, uh, born out of a sense of need for you. And that that would not just be um, noise reverberating over our vocal cords, but that it would be a prayer from the depths of our souls that we need you. Individually, personally, I need you. May each of us say, I need you. Congregationally, ecclesially, we need you. Together, may that be the cry of us in unison that we need you. As we turn to your word, may you give us what we need for this moment, in this time. And may you lead us onward, in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, in your Bibles this morning, the New Testament letter of Paul to the Romans and the 8th chapter. Romans chapter 8. And I'm going to read from verse 31. Romans chapter 8, verse 31. The word of the Lord through the Apostle Paul, says, What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare His own Son, but gave Him up for us all, how will He not also with Him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine, or nakedness, or danger, or sword. As it is written, for your sake, we're being killed all the day long. We're regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No. In all these things, we are more than conquerors through Him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Amen. What then shall we say to these things? Say, to what things, we might ask? The passage that we've read is at the end of chapter 8. Halfway through a letter of 16 chapters. So there's a very real sense in which we are diving into a thought that is somewhat in process. It could then be any number of things in theory. You are not going to learn best from a book by just diving in randomly in the middle of it. But 
An exploration of the immediate context does provide us with an answer. It shows us that he is referring to what he calls in verse 18. The sufferings of this present time. Have a look at verse 18. I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. So when we read in verse 31, what then shall we say to these things? You have to explore where the then is. You have to go back in time, and that means going back in the text. What then shall we say to these things? What are these things? These things are the sufferings of this present time. I had planned to begin a new series this morning. But Friday night, I found myself dissatisfied with the message that I had prepared. Not that there was anything wrong with that message. I uh, had the blessing of running it by Scott, um, who's, by the way, um, visiting us just for a, a few weeks en route to India. But um, uh, we, we discussed it, and probably when I said, uh, turn in your Bibles, Scott was already ready at Romans, uh, not Romans, John, uh, where I was going to be reading from um, uh, Jesus' words about being the, the vine, you are the branches, abide in me, and you will bear fruit. Uh, so Romans 8 probably came as a bit of a surprise, since our conversations and study and those hours of dealing with the text and discussing it, um, I realized that I needed to speak to these things. That is, the sufferings of this present time. Various events can impact that, and I'm not saying that they always should. But they were uh, weighing upon me. And if they weigh upon me, I dare say they are weighing upon some of you this morning. Globally, I saw the footage coming in from the earthquake in Turkey and Syria. Just last night, the news was reporting a death toll surpassing 25,000 people. I was gripped by the photograph of the father sat in the rubble and his hand if you look closely, is holding the hand of his child on her bed, still trapped. I spend most of my study hours in Pret. Uh, I have meetings there, I study the scriptures there, and I interact with members of the community there. One of those um, is our friend Ali. Some of you have met. He has attended our gatherings and Ali was, um, as ever, uh, listening to something, and it was the news. And he was uh, telling me about his family and his friends, those whom he's been able to contact, and those whom he's not been able to get through to, and eventually learning the inevitable news that people he knows and loves are among the dead. Indeed, in an area where 4% of the um, borough population is Turkish, where Turkish is the second most uh, used language in our community, most of the people that you interact with of Turkish descent will either themselves be touched personally by this event or will know someone who has been. Please remember that when you interact with them. It's, it's not just boss man at the shop or at the restaurant. That is a human being who has family and friends, people that they, that, that they love and that they care for, people that they will not see or hear from again. What will we say to these things? What will you say if you have any human relationship, not utilitarian, but human relationship as you ought with your Turkish neighbors, considering they are everywhere? What will you say to these things? What do you have to offer? 
That is the question the Apostle Paul raises to us this morning. What shall we say to these things? Continentally, I was reminded multiple times this week through various means that we are fast approaching the first anniversary of Russia's invasion of Ukraine. At the beginning of the week, my father-in-law traveled with a group of pastors to the east of um, Ukraine, to the Donbass region, where there is an appeal that has gone out from recently liberated towns and cities from the churches because um, as the um, uh, invaders have withdrawn, uh, bearing in mind that some of them have been there since 2014, actually, um, uh, the churches are filling up. Churches that had been disrupted, churches that had been forcibly closed, churches that have been interrupted by invading forces are filling up with people. Some of them are refugees fleeing the increasingly um, um, embattled uh, further eastern regions. Others are people who are seeking the Lord, who do not yet trust in Him. And the appeal goes out. And so my father-in-law, Adriana's father, um, traveled uh, this week there. And I was thinking about that. And then I was seeing the president's visit in, uh, to the UK this week. And I was reading various things, listening to various things, and I saw various things I had written a year ago. A year ago today, I circulated to you a translated prayer sheet from the churches in Ukraine, appealing desperately for our prayers. And we had a, that designed and formatted, translated, designed and formatted and circulated. That was a year ago today. What shall we say? To these things. I know interest has faded for some, but for others of us, not least with family and um, enduring ministry partners going back through for years there, we cannot look away and we cannot stay silent. What shall we say to these things? Every Saturday, there are Ukrainian refugees who meet in this hall and are instructed in the English language in a, a, um, um, a gospel holistic ministry that Ileana leads. What can we say to them? We've been actively involved in rehousing people who have fled some of the hardest hit places in Ukraine onto this very street. Well, we're not flying that flag or, or trumpet all the time uh, as to what we have done or, or, or uh, lives we have impacted. Consider the impact of just one family finding a place of safety and refuge. For generations, the impact that that can have. What shall we say to them and the things that they have endured? Nationally, it seems to me that our systems are breaking down left, right, and center. And um, the poorest and most vulnerable in society are left to pay the price. Quite apart from the, um, the secular aspect of the nation, there is the spiritual aspect of the nation. And I uh, absolutely do not believe in the concept of a state church for any number of reasons that should be obvious and confessionally apparent just in our church identity, never mind our consistent preaching. But um, nonetheless, there are brothers and sisters in uh, the, the Church of England, and they have for decades, not just this year, but for decades been debating the blindingly obvious in God's Word. And this week... Um, decided that they would please everybody and thereby successfully have pleased no one. We do not believe, they said, that, um, uh, that, that, that uh, you know, God approves of same-sex marriages. So we will not be conducting same-sex marriages. But we will be saying prayers of blessing over them. Doesn't make any sense, does it? People have asked what the logic is. There is no logic. The scriptures talk about those who are double-tongued. And those who are double-tongued are double-minded. And they're trying to, to do everything at the same You can't do that. Let God be true and every man a liar. What shall we say to these things? Because there are men and women who have died to self 
within the Anglican communion who have, who have embraced the way of Jesus, recognizing that uh, their, their desires are out of step with God's design and have submitted themselves to the lordship of Jesus Christ. And now they're being told by their own church it was for nothing. That God blesses such, such things. And there are others who have um, uh, not had those particular inclinations, but nonetheless have stood for reform and spoken for reform and all of that. And um, back to the Bible, and they feel that all of these years have been wasted for pandering to a godless culture. What shall we say to these things? Locally, all sorts of nonsense crossed my path this week. But I still think about the conversation I had, actually, my first full day of sabbatical. There's always something. Um, and it's enabled by tech. It doesn't matter if you, you know, block certain things and mute certain things. Something always gets through. I had the misfortune of awakening at 4 or something in the morning with jet lag and uh, feeling quite alert. I was alerted all the more by a notification that someone was at my door. I uh, did the math and I realized, oh wait, yes, of course, it's mid-morning here. And I thought, oh, just out of curiosity, I would see, you know, which postman it was or if uh, things were being restored at all on that front. So I, 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 I click and it's a policeman. So I had a conversation with the policeman over my doorbell, which, of course, a few years ago would have seemed like a, a dream of science fiction. But we had a very clear conversation. Oh, yeah, I was just, just responding to reports that some youths with machetes had run down the path. No, no, there's no, no youths with machetes run down this path. Have you checked the other one? I then go on to my WhatsApp, and sure enough, my next door neighbor is live, tweet, uh, live uh, messaging me images and texts. A young man sat on her glass kitchen window, carrying a machete, looking down at her into her kitchen, running from whatever he'd been up to. So that, that really will set you up great for a restful trip. Um, um, I was just glad I was, I was uh, there and not here, I suppose. It's definitely off my plate. But one week out, I get texts. They're hosing down the pavement outside of Superdrug. Oh, it's like a bucket of blood spilled out in front of the Superdrug, and they're hosing it down. Two youths in a machete fight. You could have guessed it. At the other end of the month. What shall we say to these things? And of course, congregationally, we're dealing with prolonged sickness, mental health struggles, spiritual issues, work issues, and most painfully this week, what um, uh, I shared at the beginning of the service our sister Patricia Laudat, whose commitment and prayers years ago are a big part of the survival and eventual success of a gospel work in this place, was hospitalized with a stroke. What shall we say to these things? See, when, when, when we get into the text, it... it forces us to ask these questions. And not only to ask these questions generally, but to ask them um, uh, of our experience. Sometimes we have to start at the end of the verse before we can move on to what we say. We have to really understand these things. In the text, looking back at the text, these things are seen both in... Creation generally and in the Christian life more specifically. Look back at verse 20. Verses 20 through 21. Paul is talking about creation. These things in creation. Are you reading those? 
Paul says that creation is unwillingly subjected to futility and is in bondage to decay. He he says it's like a vapor. It's fleeting. It's here today and it's gone tomorrow. It blossoms and flourishes. It withers and perishes. In verse 22, he notes how creation is groaning in pain. He uses the graphic imagery of childbirth and labor pains to describe the pain. These labor pains have been going on for a long time at the time of his writing. But but 2,000 years later, we can say today, creation is still in labor and the baby hasn't come yet. So what shall we say to these things? What shall we say to a world that is falling apart? What shall we say to a world that is assaulted by perpetual decay, disease, and death? Creation was created good, not only in our eyes, but in God's eyes. What shall we say then when we look around and we see it rotting and sinking and decaying and broken? What shall we say not only to the sufferings of creation, but to those of people who are called a new creation in Christ? Because there's creation, and then there's new creation. But how new is the new creation sometimes? At least as we experience it and as we feel it. What shall we say to the sufferings of Christians? You know, some people say things that seem to indicate that Christians do not suffer or will not suffer. Have you heard such things before? And there are variations of it where they'll, they'll say, oh, you're, you know, if you had more faith, you would not be sick. If you had more faith, this would not have happened. And they continue to call themselves Christians, even though that is far from the Word of God, far from the teaching of Scripture, and it's disillusioning and disorienting millions of people around the world and enslaving still others who believe because they are told that the foremost manifestation of their demonstration of faith is pouring faith seeds into the person who's telling them this nonsense ministry. Well, we were in the USA, um, we had the opportunity to explore uh, downtown Clearwater, Florida, which is a beautiful place. It's a stunning place. It's just um, uh, unfortunate that the most beautiful part of it, the most stunning architectural part of it is, in fact, the headquarters of the Church of Scientology. I have always had a fascination with these quirky groups and cults and things like that, and uh, the more secretive, the more intrigued I I am, and I always ask people for explanations and seldom get anything of clarity. But as I stood outside this grand building, um, on the one hand, the Fort Harrison Hotel, where there are reports of 911 calls over the years made in their hundreds, never um, uh, access is permitted to the emergency services, but... Whatever goes on there stays there. And on the other hand is, is uh, what they call flag land base. I don't know. It sounds weird to start with, some sort of nerd religion or something. But um, flag land base. And I'm thinking I'm going to walk in and I'm going to um, um, uh, learn about this. But it was frightening to behold. I, I was, I'm not so sure if I want to go in. Not that place. It's a little too um, um, out there. So I um, uh, kept walking. We found a smaller building, and it was more welcoming. There was someone sat at a table, and there was an exhibit. So I walked in and asked if I could look around. And this exhibit was very interesting. It was an introduction to the uh, founder of Scientology, L. Ron Hubbard, and his teachings. And we sat and we watched a number of documentaries that they had, and we read the exhibit and all of that, and I learned a great deal, and at the same time, uh, very little. It, it was, at, at its heart, was this sense that very much these, these things that you endure, these sufferings that you have, 
they can be, through uh, a very rigorous process and the exchange of funds, uh, be ultimately relinquished. And you can be freed from all of these, these poisonous things that are within you and upon you. And it blends a bit of science fiction sounding stuff with true enough common sense and scientific um, explorations of the workings of the human uh, mind and mental health and all of that. And, and so there are moments where you're like, that makes sense and that's actually true. And then there's something completely weird and wild that it leads to. Just before we arrived there, there was a woman who had burnt herself um, uh, alive to death um, to be free so that her inner self could be liberated from this diseased body. That's what some would say to these things. Others, around the corner from that was um, a, um, a, a Christian science reading room. Different cult, okay? I know they sound the same, but they're different. This one, founded by Mary Baker Eddy, communicates something of the um, illusory nature of your suffering. It's not real. Does that, is that true to your life? Is it an illusion? Even if it was an illusion, the illusion is quite real, isn't it? What shall we say to these things? Christians are groaning inwardly while suffering outwardly. Of course, as humans, our sufferings are like the rest of creation. And then there are ways that Christians suffer simply because they are Christians. But that's not even the type of suffering that he talks about. Really, he, he, he talks about in the verses preceding this how we are afflicted by spiritual weakness to the point that we are ignorant of what to pray. We've been taught to pray. We don't have to say, Lord, teach us to pray because other disciples already asked that and He already taught us to pray. And yet we still find ourselves identifying with those words perhaps more than any in Scripture. Lord, teach us to pray. We, we ourselves have prayed. We've seen others pray. We've learned from their prayers. But sometimes even when we do know what and how to pray intellectually, we don't functionally. We get to a moment and it's obvious what to pray for, but we can't find the words. And so in verse 26, we read, The Spirit helps us in our weakness, for we do not know what to pray for as we ought, but the Spirit Himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. We have to have the God to whom we pray... Pray on our behalf. What shall we say to these things? I think it's clear, uh, perhaps for some, too clear what these things are. We started with these things. Now I want you to see what we shall say. Because what we shall say lifts the burden of these things. How do we answer? How do we respond? You answer with God's word. Remember Jesus. You're not above Jesus. Jesus was tempted in every way as we are. Jesus, when he was tempted in the wilderness at the beginning of it all, himself responded, it is written. Jesus talking to Satan, it is written. So when you have doubting thoughts, pain thoughts, thoughts that are so filled with suffering that you cannot feel your Savior and you think that you cannot take it anymore, when you begin to doubt God's faithfulness, when you question the power of the risen Christ in your life, when you are forgetting that He who is in you is greater, answer with God's Word. Because that's what Paul does. 
Verse 32, the Apostle Paul is immersed in, in Scripture. So in verse 32, he says, He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Now that in and of itself is Scripture, because God is breathing out His Word in and through the Apostle Paul. There is no dichotomy between the Apostle Paul and the the, the Word of God and the Word of Jesus in this passage. But the Apostle Paul is alluding to another passage of Scripture when he uses the imagery of God not withholding His own Son, not sparing His own Son. The story of Abraham in Genesis chapter 22. Abraham's faith was tested. He was told to take his son, the son, his only son, whom he had with Sarah, the one through whom his descendants would be innumerable as the stars and the sands. Sacrifice him is what Abraham was told to do. Confident that God would provide a substitute, or if it came to it, raise him from the dead... Abraham had his son strapped down and was raising the knife when the angel of the Lord said, Stop. I know that you fear God, seeing that you have not withheld your son, your only son, from me. Later, he uses the same language and says, Because you have done this and not withheld your son, your only son, from me, I will surely bless you. He reiterates then, In your offspring shall all the nations of the earth be blessed. That offspring, Paul identifies elsewhere as none other than Jesus Christ. In Christ, God did not withhold his son, his only son, but gave him up as a sacrifice for us all. In Christ, with Christ, we are graciously given all things, as we just read. We have all spiritual blessings in heavenly places, but He also provides for our material welfare as well. There may be an allusion here to the sayings of Christ taught in the early days of the church, including, seek first the kingdom of God and His righteousness. And all these things shall be added unto you. He will graciously give us all things. What things? What to eat? What to drink? What to wear? Where to live? What the future holds? Everything that you're burdened about. Everything that you're anxious about. He says, don't be anxious. Seek the kingdom and I'll give you all that you need. Do you believe that this morning? Do you believe that in Christ, with Christ, you have everything that you need and He will continue to supply what you need? Verses 33 through 34 of our text. Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It's God who justifies. As God is the one who declares us righteous. It's not for someone else to declare righteous or unrighteous. It's God. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. That is, condemnation, the debt of condemnation, has been paid. He's been condemned in our place. More than that, He was raised. Because condemnation could not condemn forever. Paul asks, who is to condemn? And again, he's alluding to Scripture. Specifically, Isaiah chapter 50, verses 8 through 9. Those words read, He who vindicates me, that is, he who justifies me, is near. Who will contend with me? Let us stand up together. Who is my adversary? Let him come near to me. Behold, the Lord God helps me. Who will declare me guilty? Behold, all of them wear out like a garment. The moth will eat them up. And, and it, it, it's, it's combative language from the prophet that, that very much sums up, if, if you will, um, a, a, a few people having a row. And someone stands up and asks, who wants to fight? 
Who, who, who is against me? Who really wants to take me on? And then he scoffs at them as wearing out like a moth eats up fabric. You cannot stand, but I will stand. Why? Because God is with me. Do you see what Paul is doing? He's responding to these things with the word. We've had the law because that's what the Hebrews called uh, Genesis is in the books of the law. And you have the prophets. Isaiah chapter 50 um, uh, being, being one of them, which he is clearly referencing in this text. Let's, you know, I have something greater than the greatest thing that comes against me. I have a blessing that's better than the strongest curse that is pointed in my direction. I have a Savior who is stronger than anything that would try to strong arm me. Who will contend with me? Let's fight it out. Let's, let's, let's see who wins. Because the Lord is my helper. And He will throw down those things that are coming against me. Jesus has been condemned and died in our place. He has been to the grave and bested the grave. None of us can do that. He... He's not only gone down into the grave. The grave could not hold him down in its grip. He's risen. Jesus rose never to die again. And he's ascended and he's been raised to the right hand of the Father. As, as uh, Paul says, he's raised at the right hand. He is at the right hand of God. So he's mentioning there another scripture, Psalm 110, 1. The Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool. And then we have to ask, what is Jesus doing until, uh, apart from propping up his feet on the backs of his enemies? He's interceding for us, Paul says. He indeed is interceding for us, into verse 34. He reminds us there of the truth of Isaiah 53, where we're told that the despised and rejected Messiah has borne our griefs, carried our sorrows, wounded for our transgression, crushed for our iniquities, carrying the iniquity of us all, was stricken for the transgression of His people, but as His soul made an anguished offering for sin, He saw and was satisfied that He has made many to be accounted righteous. So satisfied is he by the outcome of his suffering, he poured out his soul to death and was gladly numbered with transgressors of the law, bearing your sin. He makes intercession for transgressors, pleading our case, having already paid the penalty for us. An accusation comes against you. A condemnation is put upon you. The voice of Jesus pipes up and says, He's with me, bought and paid for. I've already covered it. It's already sorted. So, so um, uh, there, there's still suffering. Don't get me wrong. There's still sorrow among those for whom Jesus died. And Paul knows that, but he's trying to bring all of this other stuff into our, our, our frame of reference so we are able to respond to our suffering and our sorrow. He quotes Psalm 44, 22, reminding us that whereas once we may have suffered for crimes, now we suffer for Christ. The wider context of that psalm is a prayer for God to rise up and come to help and redeem His people. It's rooted in belief and hope and faith that God is greater than all the people and problems, principalities and powers that oppose us. When He says, for your sake we are being killed all the day long, we are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered, He wants you to go back and read the rest of the psalm. Because yes, that's how we're regarded by this world and it's evil, but we are regarded as sons and daughters of a loving heavenly Father who helps us 
saves us, hears us, redeems us, lifts us, and puts down all that opposes us. You see, at the heart of that psalm, if you were to read it, is an exclamation, a celebration. The ones who are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered begin to worship. You are my king, O God. Ordain salvation for Jacob. Through you we push down our foes. Through your name we tread down those who rise against us. Not in my bow do I trust. Nor can my sword save me. But you have saved us from all of our foes. You have put to shame those who hate us. In God we have boasted continually. And we will give thanks to your name forever. That's what Paul is getting at. Because that's where he takes us next. Interlayered throughout our response with God's word. I really wanted to emphasize that. But there's a couple of other things. What shall we say? We'll speak. We'll answer with God's word. We'll answer with God's work. Because God's word testifies about God's work. If God is for us, Paul asks, who can be against us? The creator of the universe, the sustainer of everything, God above all is on our side if we're trusting in Him. It seems almost irreverent for God to take someone's side, does it not? If God is for us, so much of the emphasis we place in our life is, uh, is the question, are we for God? And that is an important question. But here Paul is writing to a local church. And I'm speaking to a local church. If God is for us, who can be against us? We might generally say that God doesn't take sides. In fact, God himself says as much a time or two in Scripture. We might say God doesn't take sides. He is a side. But here he takes his people's side. And that is encouraging if you are his people. Now, if you're not God's people, God getting proximate to you is not particularly comforting news. Because God is light and there is no darkness within him. And when the light shines in the darkness, it exposes what once was dark. And so people hate the light and they run from it. But God on our side, if if we have a right relationship with Him, God's coming and standing next to us is not, is not God's about to put me in a headlock and wrestle me to the ground. It's God's about to put His arm around my shoulder and carry me through. Hold me up. Heal me and help me. You see... Um, God on our side is greater than anything and everything that comes against us. God's gift in our Savior is greater than anything taken from us. Charges. Because Paul says there's charges that have come against God's people. And there are charges that come against you. There are legitimate accusations that could be made against each one of us. God justifies. God makes you right. You can confess. You can confess your sin this morning because you have the assurance that God makes you right. Condemnation. Christ was also condemned. You could be condemned deservedly. You deserve someone to condemn you. Okay? But Christ was condemned undeservedly with joy. He died, but was raised. Paul points us back to the gospel. We answer with God's work. Finally, we answer with God's wisdom. If God's word... Think about wisdom in terms of an equation. A logical equation. If God's word says X... 
And if God's work has done Y. Are you thinking with me now? God's word says X. God's work has done Y. What does that equal? God's word says, I'm with you. God's work says, I'm for you. What does that mean? It means God is with you and for you. What does that mean for everything that's against you? It means they don't stand a chance. It means they will not succeed. They will not keep you from Him. They will not keep you from His love. They will not keep you from His help and His healing and His, his, his strength in your life. That must mean, you, you, you're like, is it, does it mean God is really with me? I don't feel His presence. I don't see His hand. But, but God's Word says, He is with you to the ends of the earth. Which is a spatial statement. Wherever you are, there is no place where He is not. He also says, I am with you to the end of the age. That's a time statement. There is no age where he is more or less present or active. You can't say, oh, look at the former things. A fool says those things, the Bible says. Look at the former things. No, now he's with you. Do you believe it? In all things. Not some things, in all things. Verse, verse 37 and then also uh, earlier, verse 35. There's, there's a no after each item that's listed. Shall we be killed all the day long? No. Shall we be marginalized, dehumanized, brutalized, and no one cares like sheep for the slaughter? No. In all things, not away from all things, not removed from all things, not apart from all things, not despite all things, but in all things. In what things? In your suffering, friends. In the groaning of creation, He's with you. In your weakness, He's with you. Even in your weakness to talk to your incredibly loving adoptive father, He's with you. In these things, we are more than conquerors. Do you believe that? We are more than conquerors because He is the conqueror. We are more than conquerors because he has invaded our life. And we are submitted to Him. And He has filled us with His Spirit to be like Him. As the songwriter says, in every condition, in sickness, in health, in poverty's veil, or abounding in wealth, at home or abroad, on the land, on the sea, as day shall demand, shall thy strength ever be. Verse 38, he says, I'm sure. I'm sure. Not I'm thinking, not I'm wondering, not I suppose that this might be the case. I'm sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. The psalmist says, when I ascend to the heavens, you are there. When I go to, into the abyss, you are there. When I sit in darkness, you are a light to me. Friends, if you've turned from your sins and are trusting in Him, you can say, I'm sure. I'm sure. Look, it is not for you to give a philosophical breakdown or even a theological explanation in great detail for every reason why suffering comes. Do you know that's not the emphasis of Scripture? Scripture has answers for that very question, absolutely. But the emphasis of Scripture is not... Here's why suffering comes. The emphasis of Scripture is how you are going to respond. And to what end. 
Because the end is not suffering for those who know God. The end is an eternity of hope. The end is a glory that rests upon us with a weight greater than any suffering you've ever known. If you feel heavy hearted now, that heavy heartedness is a bad feeling. But God is preparing you to be strong to carry glory, joy forevermore. God is with you. God is for you. You've been bought by the blood of Christ. You've been promised eternity. You do not have to live in perpetual doubt and despair and disheartenment. Regardless of your situation. However high you rise or however low you are brought. If you are saved by God's grace through faith in Jesus Christ. Nothing can separate you from Him and His love. Nothing No, not even suffering. You you don't have to be overwhelmed. You don't have to be overcome. You don't have to be swept away by your suffering. Or the suffering around you. You can be a beacon of hope in someone else's darkness. Why? Because God's word, work, and wisdom remind us. God on our side is greater than anything and everything that comes against us. God's gift in our Savior is greater than anything taken from us. Let's pray. As we pray, let's still our hearts before the Lord and let's ask Him to minister His his peace, His comfort, His all-surpassing comfort to us. Those things globally, nationally, Locally, congregationally, that I mentioned, all of that's real. It's still going to be waiting for us. But God is greater. Lord God, we come before you this morning and ask that you would encourage our hearts. That you would lift our spirits. That you would heal our wounds. That you would shine into the darkness of despair, the light of hope in Christ. And Lord, this morning, I do not know how people cope without you. I don't know how people face anything without you. But perhaps there's someone here today who, who, who needs to, to know you, you are for us. You're not for them at this moment. But you may be working for their salvation And so in a sense you are. Lord, you are for your people. So I pray, Lord, that you would bring to repentance of sin and faith in Jesus Christ anyone here today who does not have this hope, who cannot stand in the face of suffering and have an answer. Lord, we we ask that you would help us, that you would hear us, heal us in every way we need it. In Jesus' name, amen.